0: Let's take Matt off of mute. Can, can, can I can I comment? <laughs> no, Matt, I'm on a roll.
1: <laughs> I So I <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by iTunes. What about okay. traffic circles? <laughs> no, no. I, I discuss traffic circles. I want to talk about iTunes. So I did not know this till I got here. And I tried got to- where? Got to, to- To London. UK? Oh. And I tried to download an app for a coffee place that I like to go to. And uh, I opened up the app to, to have it tell me where the nearest stores are. And it said the nearest store is 1,000 miles away in <laughs> wherever in the United States, which I thought was kind of strange. And then I went to the store to try and pay with the app, but it wouldn't work. And that is when I learned for the first time, there is a difference between the U.S. iTunes and the U.K. iTunes. And you cannot get into the U.K. iTunes without a U.K. credit card with a U.K. address, hmm. which is strange. So there are some apps actually have a different version for different places. Why does this matter? This is because... When I went into the, when I finally got into the UK iTunes is where I learned we have some UK iTunes ratings. Oh, really? And we have not, not too many of them. We only have about 10 or so. And that is where we have our first ever negative rating. Seriously? <laughs> In which <gasps> someone, say? No, someone, no actually
0: it's not true. There was somebody else who, who said that they would never listen to the podcast again.
1: Oh, That's fair right. enough. That is Deeply a good point. Deeply offended
0: by the poop pill.
1: That's, That's probably right. it. So, yeah, no, right. this was... We stepped uh, in it on that one. We're this one, yeah. uh, somebody suggested oh, that uh, we were helping to cure their insomnia. <laughs> but it was, but we only got a four rating. So I think we're still, even with, the, you know, maybe, maybe this person was quite pleased with us for helping to cure their insomnia. So, so. It,
0: was, it, was, it was from a UK listener?
1: I'm going to assume so, yep, based on the fact <gasps> that it was in the UK iTunes. So there you wow. go.
0: Wow. Well, clearly a statistical
2: outlier, so we should just remove that one.
1: Well, if you, are, if you are upset about it, I know a place where you can drown your sorrows, Chris. Oh, wait a minute. Does it involve P-H-X online X-
2: courses exchange? of some sort? It and does. Podcasting
1: professors? It does. But before we get to that, let's introduce ourselves.
2: Podcasting professors.
1: I am Matt Fox from the Boston University <laughs> School of Public Health, and I am here with... Christopher Gill. Donald Thea. From also from the School of Public Health in the Boston University, they're in the Godly Studio. I am not. I am in London. But anyway, yes, it is March now. It's that time of year when everything is gross outside. March is my least favorite month. Just so you all know, madness. There are no holidays. I do enjoy March. Valentine's Day. March. We're in March now. Remember. No, 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 we're, no, oh, no, right. we're not. No. Right. We're, in we're in March. Wink, wink, don, wink, It says, wink, it says wink, February
0: wink, 15th on wink, my paper. Oh, wink, oh, wink, oh,
1: oh, oh, right, right, okay. When this comes out, it's March, remember? <laughs> no, I always forget. Anyway. Valentine's Day a ta- long time ago. I just, I just take things too long literally.
0: Time
2: ago. It, ago. it is the date when people schedule their, spouse, their, their fights with their significant others.
1: Where do you go to deal with the uh, horrors of March? You've ruined this whole intro, really. Oh, I can do it every time. Just go to the Population Health Exchange website, please, and I will stop right. talking about it.
2: It's a, it's a hoot. I like it because it's a Center for Lifelong Learning.
1: It really is. Thank you for that, Chris. Uh, and as a reminder, go to the UK or US or Danish or whatever iTunes there is out there.
0: Does this mean that there are comments awaiting us in every country's there, version of iTunes? There oh, may in fact be, be, and
1: I don't know how we would get to them. But anyway, that's that's another problem for another time. Oh, you know We're what? Here's the thing. Okay, so if you are a listener in another country other than the United States, or let's see, even let's even UK, if you can go onto iTunes and screenshot the the uh, iTunes comments for us. From your country and send it to us. We would we would greatly we would appreciate love it. that. That would be great. That would that would yeah. be fantastic. Anyway, now finally onto the show.
2: <laughs> Six star ratings.
1: So today <laughs> in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study that looked at whether or not the environment that Amish children grow up in provides protection against asthma. We're not kidding, by the way. No, we're not kidding. That is a true. St- and then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about uh, an update to something that we talked about in previous episodes, which was Plan S. Uh, from, and from outer space. Plan S, not from outer space. Plan S for journals uh, and journal publications. And uh, then in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or Chris will tell us the best ways to study. So <laughs> let's get into segment one. We are going to look into an article which, as I said, uh, looked at whether or not the, the, the environment in which Amish children grow up is protective against asthma. The study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It wasn't a new study. We just really were interested in this one. So this one came from 2016. It was entitled Innate Immunity and Asthma Risk in Amish and Heterite— Heterite? Am I saying that right? Hutterite. Hutterite. Hutterite, Hutterite farm Hutterite. children. Hutterite. Hutterite. Uh, The first author was Michael Stein of the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Chicago and along with colleagues. And here were the headlines. So I had to go back a little bit for these, but this is from the Charlotte Observer. It said, how cows and the Amish may help prevent asthma in children. MSN said, Amish kids help scientists understand why farm life reduces asthma risk. PBS says, does modern society worsen allergies and asthma? Ask the Amish. And USnews.com says, is your home too clean for your child's health? Which again, may be a little bit of a leap there. Not sure. Anyway, Don, can you uh, can you can you fill us in on this one? What are they what do they do and what was this one all about? I loved this study. I thought yeah. this study
0: was so awesome. Me too. All right. So this is uh, another elegant study where they combine <laughs> findings in real life with findings at the bench. Mm. And as Matt said, it has to do with um, asthma and allergies. And it's particularly important because we know that asthma and allergies, as we discussed, I think, with the peanut allergy, but certainly it it applies to asthma, are increasing. And for reasons that aren't completely clear why they're increasing. But there have been a number of factors that have have been found that contribute to allergy responsiveness as well as, as asthma. And they include maternal diet and antibiotic use, Interestingly, I didn't realize this, mode of delivery, C-section, increases the risk of um, asthma in the child. Postnatal diets, such as breastfeeding, nutrient content, um, the age of the introduction of specific foods, genetic factors, and recently, the environment seems to be implicated in, um, in increasing the risk of the development of asthma. There have been a number of epi studies from Europe which have show, that show that there is protection in children, from developing asthma if they're raised on a dairy farm. And in particular, it seems like high microbial exposures um, is protective. It's a confusing relationship. Other studies have shown increased asthma risk among inner city dwellers um, exposed to high levels of roach and or mouse allergens and or um, pollutants. One study from Johns Hopkins, which looked at inner city kids in Baltimore, Boston, New York, and St. Louis, seemed to suggest that if you're exposed to these allergens, during the first year of life, you're at decrease. So it could be some level of sensitization that occurs during the first year of life as your immune system is developing that has an effect on this. So the one thing that hasn't been looked at is really looking at the relationship between these observations and what's going on with the immune system. And that's what these guys did is is they they took this very specialized population and they combined it with some bench work and they seem to have um, elaborated more of the underlying immunologic story as to what's going on. So these guys took advantage of two really interesting populations, um, the Amish and the Hutterites. Now, the Amish... Originally but they both came over to, um, from Central Europe to the United States in the 17 to 1800s um, during the Protestant Reformation the Amish came from settled in India Indiana but that came from a particular part of Switzerland and the Hutterites settled in South Dakota and came from a particular part in South Tyrol and They're very insular communities, so they have remained pretty genetically non-diverse because they have have remained in these particular populations over a long period of time. Now, their their main occupation is agricultural. As people know, the Amish, living in Indiana as well as other areas um, throughout uh, the United States and perhaps elsewhere, tend to adhere to a very traditional life. So they farm with animals, and they use very sort of old-world tools. And the Hutterites have many of the same characteristics, and they live a very traditional life, but they actually use machines instead of just animals to do um, their agriculture. The, the characteristics of these two populations that are the same in these in, uh, the Amish and the Hutterites are that they tend to have large sib ships, they have high rates of vaccination, they have diets rich in fat, salt, raw milk, there's the low childhood obesity, there's long duration breastfeeding, there's minimal exposure to tobacco and air pollution, and there are taboos against indoor pets in both of these populations.
1: Sorry, can I just because you said high vaccination rates?
0: That's what it says. And I know that there have been episodes of polio and other infectious diseases in some of these populations. And the authors didn't describe that, and I didn't I didn't look, okay, look that's up surprising how, to me okay. how extensive it is. But they they cited that. Now, remarkably, there are large differences in the asthma rates in these kids. So the kids born into the Amish homes have an asthma rate of about 5.2% versus 21% in the Hutterite populations. So what these guys tried to do was to examine the environmental exposures, the genetic ancestry, the immune profiles, and the household microbial composition in these two groups and tried to correlate that with asthma prevalence in each group. And they also used a murine model of asthma using the dust that was found in the households.
1: Murine murine meaning?
0: I'm sorry, mouse. A mouse model. So they had a mouse model where they could experimentally induce asthma in the mice. They looked at 60 children, 30 in each, between the ages of 7 and 14 years of age. They were matched by sex and by age within one year. They collected electrostatically dust collections in the two households, 10 in the Amish and 10 in the Hutterites. So they didn't collect dust from all households, just a subset. And they vacuumed the living room floor and mattresses in both places for dust and did a microbial analysis on that. Um, And then what they did is they took the dust that they found in the homes of these two populations and they basically shot it into the nose of mice that had been uh, pre-conditioned to develop asthma and they looked at whether the the pre-exposure of the dust from the various households could protect the mice from a challenge that subsequently produced increased resistance in their airways. In other words, asthma. So... As far as the results are concerned, the, the population in the Amish um, had a lower IgE, which is an immunoglobulin which is associated with asthma. They're, they compared the specific alleles uh, in the genetic analysis with other northern European groups, such as the Basques and the Sardinians and the Tuscans, and they found that these two groups were, in fact, genetically very similar to one another and different from the others. They looked for common dust allergens in the, in the various homes. There were four out of 10 homes had all, um, in the uh, Amish had um, common dust allergies allergens, and only one out of 10 in the Hutterite homes did. And they also looked at airborne endotoxin levels. And endotoxin is a very um, uh, specific protein that is elaborated by bacteria. And that means, in essence, that there is the presence of bacteria in whatever substance that they found this lipopolysaccharide in. And they found that the endotoxin, this lipopolysaccharide, was sevenfold higher in the dust from the Amish home as opposed to, to the Hutterite homes. And there were... When they looked at the cells in the kids, there was a striking difference. So the Hutterite kids had high eosinophils, which, as I said, uh, I, which is associated with um, high IgE and is um, also associated with symptomatic asthma, and they um, didn't find that in the homes of the Amish. They found that there was a significant difference in the number and kind of upregulated genes in the two groups, and they all clustered around function of the innate immune system. And as I said, they did these series of mouse experiments, and when they took that dust and they injected it into the nostrils of the mice um, from the Amish homes, it seemed to protect the mice from developing asthma subsequently. So there was a whole bunch of both observational data and experimental data in the mouse model that seemed to indicate that these kids from Amish families who grew up in a household that was close to the barn, and they were... Working with the farm animals, and they were exposed to you know all of the bacteria associated with working on a farm, and it was being tracked into the house. They had much less asthma, and they had an immune profile that seemed to protect them from the development of of asthma.
1: Yeah, so this was I mean this is this is a really interesting study, and so much different from many of the studies that we've done. It was it's observational in nature, but it wasn't even you know the kind of observational studies that we normally do. I mean from Best I could tell, I mean, I would categorize this maybe as cross-sectional data, you know, a small sample size, but 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 a combination of a lab data, uh, you know, as you said, bench science and and uh, human subjects data, and it's you know it's it's a it's a really interesting couple of really interesting correlated pieces of information. Chris, do you, does this convince you? I mean, is this enough for you to draw strong conclusions?
0: Let let me just mention one other finding that actually wasn't in the paper, but was in in, uh, the subsequent letters to the editor, the response by the authors to a comment made by one of the um, commenters in the letters to the editor, and that was that what they they did was they, they basically did the same mouse experiment using dust from the barn from the Hutterites, not the house the barn from the hutterites and the barn from the amish and when they used the the dust from the barn in the hutterites and they did the same experiment they found the same effect in terms of prevention of induced asthma in the mice as they found in the dust from the amish household and the hutterites live far away from the barn and the amish live quite close to the barn
1: in other words in other words the 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 dust could have Induce the same effect, but it doesn't The conclusion being because they're not living near that dust,
0: correct right. It's not in the house, and they're not they're not living near it, and they're not and they don't have that much exposure to the animals like the Amish kids do,
2: and also that the the composition of the dust found in the Amish barns was very similar to the dust found in the Amish houses, right, whereas the, there was a big there was a quite it was quite different between the Hutterite barns which were similar to the Amish barns, but the Hutterite houses were very different from the Amish right, houses. exactly. In terms of the dusts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I, 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 with Don. I, I totally adored this study. It was, I thought it was fascinating. And indeed, it was really like a, a collection of several different studies nested into one. And I, I just thought it was really cool the way they kind of put together the argument. Yeah. You know, they're like, we have this phenomenon. There's a ton of asthma in the Hutterite communities and very little asthma in the Amish communities. So why might that be? And then like, then they kind of go down the list. They like, say, well, could it be genetics? And they're like, yeah, it could be. But the genetic analysis didn't really seem that they were You know, that that would be a very compelling explanation because the the genetics were so similar between these two communities. So then you sort of get into like, well, is there a mechanistic, uh, is there a mechanism here? And then they're like, well, now we do some immunologic studies and we find that the behavior of these lymphocytes and, you know, the expression of different cytokines is very different between these two communities. And in the Hutterite community, we see one where it's very Characteristic of the asthma immune response that we see. And so that was very interesting. And then you also look at the gene expressions, and the expressions of the heterite community cluster around these, uh, excuse me, the Amish community cluster around these innate immune responses. And so, you know, for, for the listeners, the innate immune system are things like macrophages and neutrophils and eosinophils. And eosinophils are maybe the most important here, because these are the cells that are implicated in releasing histamine and triggering many of the symptoms of asthma. And so there's a change in the function of all of those cells, with sort of a down regulation. And then, you know, we have this sort of interesting split in terms of the, of the environmental exposures, which are very, very different. And that what you just said, Don, was like particularly interesting about like how the dirt tracks into the house. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the barn is right next to the house. So you can imagine people go straight from the barn into the house and kind of tromp all the dirt that's on their boots into the foyer of the house. And, you know, and that then turns into, you know, goat, or cow or, or horse dung mm-hmm. aerosols that are now being inhaled by the people in the house. I mean, it, it totally makes sense. And then the final sort of icing on the cake was to recapitulate this experiment in the mouse model to show that there's a cause and effect, that you can actually recreate these circumstances and and, and sort of, you know, create asthmatic mice through the exposure to the Hutterite versus the as the Amish Dust. dusts. I thought that was, that was also cool. But it also fits into this much larger emerging story about this so-called hygiene hypothesis which is so very interesting you know Don and I had gone to this lecture yesterday about placental inflammation in HIV it was a very good talk I thought Excellent. and she she made the point that the the placenta has this sort of complicated dynamic going on because the the, the mother the mother's immune system will see the baby as being a foreign body like an invasive Thing, that it's not because immunologically the baby different. is different it's different because it's got genes from the father so it's not the same as the mom's the mom's immune system is going to go after it and to prevent that from happening the you know the placenta shifts the immune system in the placenta to a a, a less cell mediated inflammatory state called TH2 now so we know that these shifts occur all the time that the immune system goes up and the immune system goes down and components are going up and down and it all fits into the general understanding that our bodies engage in this thing called homeostasis right yeah. you know and the simplest model of that is is that you know is, is the the pancreas and and blood sugar blood sugar goes up and it tr- triggers receptors on the beta cells in the pancreas to make insulin and then sugar goes down and then when the sugar goes down the pancreas stops making insulin until you know and that's how we regulate our sugar now the immune system is is a vastly more complicated set of feedback loops with so many different cells interacting but they are all feedback loops. And what this paper is sort of saying is that, like, what happens when you sort of push, you know, through environmental exposures, you know, a community's immune system and function in one way, very systematically, and... That's the Amish model when they're exposed to all these dusts, and the result is that it skews them away from these TH2 responses, which are associated with asthma, and much towards the TH1 responses, which are not. And the exact opposite is occurring in the Hutterite communities. I mean, I just thought it was such a a cool example of putting basic science together with epidemiology and public health, and I, I just loved it.
0: Yeah, I also thought it was it was it's a, it's it's a real natural experiment, and and the the fact that there's a taboo against indoor house uh, indoor pets really helped them to make this argument because because it, the, the the two households were not confounded by the presence of cats and dogs, which conceivably could introduce some of that fecal bacteria and the LPS and all the rest of that stuff. So it was just, it, it, it came together so nicely.
2: Yeah, and it also came on the heels of that paper we did a couple of weeks ago about peanut allergy, right?
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very like, similar.
2: You know, because you know, if you go back in the annals of pediatrics, there was this whole movement to to not do not expose kids to peanut allergies until much later in life, right. so that they would not get peanut yep. allergies, yep. right? But now we know that that was exactly wrong, and the movement has switched that yep. it's, it's you're much less likely to get peanut allergies if you were exposed to peanuts as soon as possible, yeah, uh, in life, and and that's the same thing here. I know is that we're like pushing the immune system away from an allergic response. Let's take
0: Matt off
1: of mute. Can, can, can I? Can <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I'm on a roll. <laughs> I, so I, I don't, I don't disagree with anything that you all are saying. I, oh, you're I, just gonna, I, be,
0: you're just gonna, you're just gonna talk about epidemiology, aren't I, you? I, just,
1: you know I not there's enough,
0: no, not enough cases. There were not enough p-values in this
1: paper. <laughs> Chris, there were none, it.
0: in fact, none, not a single um, p-value. No,
1: so Don, Don, just, just, just basically. You're gonna happy
0: there. nerd out on us.
1: <laughs> I that's what I do. That is my job. That is why I'm here. That's true. Um, so, so, so I agree with you. This is this is a very elegant study. It's so clever, um, and the fact that they could control so many things with with such a small sample size is really impressive to me. That the fact that they could combine both the 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 you know the multiple stages. I think back to the um, what was the the guy who um, discovered uh, H. pylori. Um uh, where oh, he, I can't remember his name, but the gastroenterologist, uh, right? It's Bob in, Pylori, wasn't it? No. No. The guy he was in Henry. In, in, Henry. <laughs> Australia. <laughs> anyway, who, who discovered you know, he he theorized this was there, he then isolated it, then he ingested it and and developed stomach ulcers and you know, he just went through the whole logic to sort of coax postulates to kind of prove things. And and so the, I agree with you that this is eloquent. Elo- Gint. eloquent but i thought it was but, eloquent but there, i knew what, well. there
0: was a but coming
1: well i have two butts number uh. one this is 30 60 total subjects 30 in each group number two mice are not people now buzz kill. Not. he's a buzzkill and so i you know i i i'm not trying to say that i don't i don't uh i'm not really intrigued by it i am but it, you know would i say that this is like overwhelming evidence, not yet. I'd want to. I'd want to see more. You don't. You don't share this. No, no, absolutely. It's it, it's a, it's a glimpse into the mechanism, and it certainly is not
0: slamming the door shut and saying that this is this is definitely what's what's going on. But there, as Chris said, there are so many different bits of evidence that all com- comport to the same finding, and they were very elegant in looking at at all of these different segments of the chain of causality. That
1: it's pretty convincing to me in a really small sample.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and, I I mean, so. and the other thing what is a and very pure thing is, population. You have to admit,
1: but but okay, but, and I agree with you 100. percent I think that's actually that's a huge strength and a, a liability because it's a strength because in terms of assessing causation, but in terms of do we do we know for sure that the, this that applies to non amish no. hunter Hutterite populations? Your you know, skepticism are, is, or,
2: is, is is right on, man. Genetically I, I,
1: very similar. I, you know, again, I I'm not um, I, I'm not. Saying that that I don't find this really interesting and compelling. I just I just want more. Yeah. He's
0: like a compliance officer, you know.
1: Uh, Right, right
0: before. That was was really mean.
2: Right before we came (laughs) to the studio this morning, I was I was curious where things had panned out in terms of the this uh, you know, another extension of this hygiene hypothesis around Trichuris, whipworm infections and inflammatory bowel disease. So there's been these claims that in the same way that you know our, our diets are are you know miserably free of intestinal parasites like I thought intestinal parasites miserably were miserably
1: free but,
2: <laughs> miserably free but there's an <laughs> argument that maybe too free is not is is, is bad because okay. it leads to inflammatory bowel disease and that that you know in the same way that exposure to hutterite versus Amish dusts in your airs skews you away from the asthmatic phenotype is it possible that exposure to intestinal parasites like worms you know little worms could uh, you know lack of exposure to these worms could actually increase your risk of getting inflammatory bowel disease. And I think this is this is a hypothesis that's been floating around for a while. And so I, I went back online and searched this up and there have been there's been one randomized controlled trial and it was <laughs> like 30 people. Uh, and it was you know the results were
0: I wonder why the, the numbers were so small. Provocative
2: but not but not at all definitive. So uh, you know it would be a while before we we have a, you know, a, a, a commercialization and an opera, 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 <laughs> operalization, op- an opera, operationalization. Thank operationalization. you. Operationalization. operationalization. This doesn't make sense. Uh, operationalization of of Amish dust uh, <laughs> capsules or something like that. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. But of course we are seeing purified peanut allergy and antigen, excuse me, mm. as a, as a pragmatic way of treating peanut yep. allergy yep so it, it's kind of the same thing yep. in a different context
1: yep no I I've, as I say I found it I found it quite elegant. I did you know as I say, small sample size I do wonder if you have the potential for selection bias and and confounding. Obviously you don't have the confounding by the genetic factors and and some of the the environmental factors but you know these are small numbers it wouldn't surprise me if if there is some confounding going on here and selection bias in that it was enriched the the sample population was rich for those with asthma. So you know it's a little hard to know. I also wondered, you know, I was thinking like why not also if if you had more time and money, also do a case control study within the populations, looking at kids with asthma compared to those without asthma as mm. another way to sort of add to the to the to the strength of evidence. So I guess my real my real complaint was was not with the study itself, it was the discussion, which I thought just went a little too far in in how. Willing they were to draw conclusions, I think. I think it's really compelling evidence, but I just, I think we need more before we would draw the the stronger conclusions.
0: You know, and the other thing we don't, we don't know in terms of taking this, this evidence and putting it into practic- practical use is that we don't know how long this effect is going to last. Is it something that you only see in kids and only while, while they're living in an Amish environment? If you took that kid out and put them in a Hutterite home or in, you know, in Lexington, <laughs> Massachusetts, right. would, they, would they then yep. revert to the, to the, to
2: the norm? Yeah, I mean that's an experiment that could be done if if the Amish and the Hutterites were willing to have some sort of like summer camp exchange for their kids, who would go and spend you know yeah. two or three months working in the other in the other group. I, I mean, obviously that there's many reasons why that might not be easy to do, but it would be kind of an interesting yeah. social experiment.
1: All right, so, so let, let, let cool. me uh, let me read you one quote that I thought summed up my my feelings about going a little bit too far, but also the the. Horrors of statistical significance. So they said our study in a small number of children was sufficient to show significant differences in the prevalence of asthma and an immune profile, suggesting that very strong environmental factors must account for these differences. And that's where I think you know the idea that if it's significant, it must be true. Yeah. You know, yeah. you get out. I can get out, point. You get out ahead of your skis. But again, I'm not. I'm. Not, I want to be very clear that I do find this really. Compelling. All right. Any any yeah. any last comments before I, I take the oh, last. The only word? other
0: thing that was noted that was noted by a commenter in the letters to the editor was that apparently the oh, let me see, get this right. It's um, the Amish don't use antibiotics with their animals, and the Hutterites do use antibiotics mm-hmm. with their yeah. animals, and huh. that could also have an effect on the on the the, ma- the microbial makeup of the dust in the respective houses. Sure. Wow, that's sure. a good point. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Huh.
1: All right, so last word, two things two things I want to point out or one is a comment, one's a question. Did you notice that the first author, there, did you uh, notice that the, the, the the degree of the first author is, is a BS?
2: Oh wow. Oh, that's
1: great. Suggesting really? the student is probably a, I'm guessing as a master student now or in a, you know, like in a PhD program, but that oh, is super that. super super impressive. But last question, did why is there a picture of a rainbow at the end? Of this?
2: Oh, the New England Journal of Medicine likes to publish um, pictures submitted by readers. Oh, so but it has nothing, nothing to do, to with, do with anything? Yeah, no, they just like pretty pictures.
1: Oh, well, there you go. I did not know that. So I learned yeah. something today. All yeah. right. So let's move on to our second segment where we want to talk about an update to Plan S. So you'll remember, or at least I hope you'll remember, Plan S is something that we talked about in a previous episode. The idea is that the plan that is, says that after January 1st, 2020, 20 scientific publications on the results of research funded by public grants provided by national and European research councils and funding bodies must be compliant with open access journals or on compliant open access platforms. And the basic idea is you you would have to, if you receive money from one of these European funding agencies, you would have to publish in an open access platform that not only was open access, but wasn't one of these hybrid models where you both had people paying for open access, but also the journal could then sell subscriptions because then essentially it's a, a double dipping where you pay for the the open access but but those same journals are still being sold to universities through these large consortium licensing agreements and the the journals probably end up making just as much if not more money off of that and so the idea is to push more content paid for by public research pay, you know paid by by tax dollars into freely accessible mediums that anybody can then access the reason we're revisiting it was that the New England Journal of Medicine published a, an editorial by uh, Charlotte Haig, which was entitled No Free Lunch, What Price Plan S for Scientific Publishing, right? Is that what it says? What Price Plan S for Scientific Publishing? Did I get no, that no, right? I
0: don't, have it in fr- I don't <laughs> see it. I don't have it in front of me.
1: All right. Well, anyway, the, the idea is that she traces uh, – open. so I didn't know all of the history here. She traces open access publishing back to 2001 – as an attempt to solve problems that publishers were impeding scientific progress and the internet was changing and developing and therefore there was no need for this. This led to the Budapest Open Access Initiative, B-O-A-I, which was inspired by George Soros, which I was not aware of. Um, That was news to me. And she essentially now is asking the question, 17 years after B-O-A-I, where do we stand? Has the open access publication model created an unprecedented Public good, and so she asks the question: Has it accelerated research and advanced science, and has it brought the cost of of publication and research down? Now she makes the claim, and I don't know, you know, how much evidence there is to back this up. That actually, since that point, uh, costs have actually gone up for acquiring research, and that you know, while it's very difficult to say that there isn't a lot of evidence to say that it is incited big accelerations in research and advancements in science. And so her point is that the open access movement started well before we knew about all the problems that the internet potentially can create. We thought it was going to be all sunshine and roses when the internet first came out. And then we found out about uh, Facebook and internet trolls and they're selling our private information and all that kind of stuff. And she asked the question, is it time for a new model or should we be letting a thousand flowers bloom? And, you know, do we need to be really prescribing one and only one approach by those receiving funding from these funding bodies in which you must only publish in specific kinds of open access journals. So I wonder, you know, what do you guys think about this? Are you swayed by this argument that, that um, really we should, we should, you know, let's try everything and see what happens. What do you think?
0: I think, I think it's a problem. I think it's, it's definitely a problem that we need to do something about the ever increasing cost of subscriptions. Okay. I pulled some figures from the internet, and um, there was one article about the increase in cost of journal prices at that UCSF subscribes to, and their base their base price level is 2007, and since 2007, in the last 10 years, the price of their journals has gone up 50% in 10 years. 50%. 50%. And UCSF. Library on subscription prices alone spends $2 million a year, and that's that's far from the highest. University of P- Pennsylvania spends about $4 million a year. University of Pittsburgh spends over $5 million a year. And I looked up some, the cost of some of these journals, the institutional cost for some of these journals, and health is actually not the highest field. There are other fields like material sciences and stuff there were journals that cost $35,000 a year to subscribe to. Hmm. And in the health realm, I think that the average journal cost to an institution is well over $1,500 for every subscription. And That's a lot more than the Atlantic Monthly. We have never had to deal with this because we have always had the benefit of being able to to search the literature for free because we're associated with, with universities. And in fact, just to add to that, the um, amazing and amusing article that I'm gonna talk about at the end of this segment, uh, I could only get the abstract because the journal in which it, it was contained wanted $50 mm-hmm. for that one article. Yeah. And as much as I value <laughs> presenting really good, high quality, amazing and amusing articles, I wasn't willing to pay $50. Well, we could put it on our expense report. We could, but, that's, but that's beside the point. The, the, the point is that it's
1: becoming an onerous one. expense. <laughs> We don't Chris have an does. Report. Chris has a... <laughs> no, just, just we don't. Charge, just charge it to the Underhill's credit card.
2: Right. Well, just ask ask a reimbursement from Leslie.
1: Right. There you go. So so clearly we need a we need a solution. The question is: Is this it?
2: Is yeah. Plan S. The answer or Plan S from just let everything... not from outer space, but from Brussels.
1: Yep. What do you think, yep. Chris? I
2: felt you know I was pretty impressed with the editorial. I thought that I came away feeling that the The proposal from the EU, the Plan S, was a little heavy-handed and a little bit too self-righteous for practical purposes. And I uh, was disputing some of the assertions that were made. Like when they, when in in the beginning they said, you know, this public allocation model will create an unprecedented public good. Well, has it?
1: You mean Plan S S. or you mean? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. This whole open access movement. Has it in fact created an unprecedented public health good? And I I can certainly say there are many things that are good that came because of it, because there's wider access to many journal articles that we didn't have before. So that's good.
1: So so, so so hang on, let me just separate out. Plan S is new. You're referring to the. the open, I'm access about movement. Open, open access. access. Okay, yeah. so yep. open
2: access is the is the premise upon which Plan S is being proposed. Yeah. Right. That open Absolutely. access is an un, un you know unmitigated good, and therefore we're going to have this Plan S thing, which is going to have to force compliance with open access through this rather severe mechanism of saying you cannot publish in any journal that is not open access, which would exclude things like the New England Journal of Medicine, if we fund you, On the Lancets, you know, and and formerly the BMJ too, but though I think they are now technically an open access journal as well. So I, I you know. You, you say, like, has it been an unprecedented uh, benefit? And there are benefits, but it has also created this plethora of these predatory open-access journals, right. which add no value. In fact, are I think are a malignancy on the, the medical literature.
0: And I would propose that because of this outgrowth, of the, this plethora of, of predatory journals um, being a real problem is part of the same underlying issue. They wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't a good business model. Exactly. And because we have seen the cost... Of subscriptions go up 50% in the last 10 years, there are all these people that are saying, "Oh my God, it's a it's a gold mine. Let's let's jump in." And at the same time, you know, the traditional journals are being driven out of business or forced to up
2: their subscription rates, which hurts the cons- the main consumers, which is the scientists. Who uh, trying yeah, to and and not, not
0: only that, it hurts the scientists that are not in in Europe and North and, and North America. Right? Who don't work at know, and have all f- of our colleagues from Africa and, and colleagues from low and middle income countries. They're they're blo- they're locked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: ahead, I, I, hear, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I'm not convinced that that predatory journals are, are are have a lot to do with this. I mean, predatory no, no, journals. I'm not think, saying
0: that. I'm just saying it's a, it's a, it's it's an indicator of of how high of how lucrative how much the money there is, is to be made. Correct.
1: That's yeah, all Yeah. I mean. No. 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 And that and that I absolutely agree with. And I, but I don't think that. that that predatory journals are, are creating the, the high cost. I think no, they are no, jumping no, no, on no. the bandwagon I agree. I agree. I agree with that. Of, of that.
2: And there's I... also, I, I want to say that there's a lot that, that is lost when you when in, in in the transition to some of these open access journals, because you you know the, the you know when you when you have a paper that goes through the Lancet, the editorial the quality of the editorial process is really high, and and you get very good reviewers, and you get statistical reviews, and you get quality in terms of the copy editing and the the reproduction of the of the figures and all of that, and like when you when you publish in an, another traditional open access journal like Plus One, you know you are your own copy editor, you are your own artist, you are your own everything, and and, and they do not do anything in terms of like copy editing generally. And the quality right. of the reviews and the management of the review processes is not always very good in my experience.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I do agree to that to a certain extent. I, I value journals and I think that journals do actually provide a valuable service. That's different from saying, are the are the profits that, that journals are making off of providing that service worth what we get from them? And I'm, I, you know, I'm not convinced that that anything is going to change if we just let a thousand flowers bloom. I have to admit, I find this. So, in full disclosure, not disclosing anything about me, but the the writer of the article is an international correspondent for the New England Journal of Medicine. So, to me, it, this this definitely felt a little self serving. This felt like mm-hmm. the New England Journal of Medicine pushing back and saying, you know, we want to be able to continue to be able to. Publish the best stuff, and we just want to be able to make a lot of money off of it, and we want to continue our business model. So, you know, let's write a reasonable article that says why we should allow, you know, all kinds of models. When in fact, you know, our model is is you know we're raking in a lot of money, and this threatens our 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 profits. I, I don't mean to to turn it just into that, but I think that is a problem. Now, as I say, I do value the services that journals provide. I don't want to go to a system whereby everybody just publishes things on their own website. I think having some system of, of, of tiering Curation. of journals where the, you know, the best stuff is, is at least being sent to. It's not that the best stuff is necessarily being published by the the highest journals, but at least you have some, you know, eh, attempt at quality that the review, the peer review process is there and in place. And we hope that it's at a higher level with higher journals because it attracts you know, better people to be uh, reviewing for them. I don't know that that's actually true, but I think that's the theory. And all of the all of the costs that go into, as Chris you say, into, into proofing and publishing and editing and and you know hosting and and creating an online platform for these things is is a valuable service. But I don't see things changing whereby the massive profits that are going they're coming being pulled out of this ever-changing in a system where we let a 1,000 flowers bloom. And so, I, you know, I'm not sure that Plan S is necessarily the greatest thing ever. I think it's—we need something shocking like this in order to to make things change. And until that happens, I'm just not convinced that, you know, a, a, a do-anything approach is going to get us where we need to go.
0: So were you saying that you don't think that Plan S is going to be successful in that regard? Bec- is that because— it's only being deployed in one geographic area, sorry, or no. If,
1: I think I think planets could be successful is what I'm saying,
0: even even within that that geographic area,
1: yeah, I think that's going to have a big influence. And eventually if if planets is successful, u s. funders would go to the same model. And so I think they have the the ability to potentially influence more than just the European funding agencies. So no, I actually do think they that that it could work. I don't know that it's gonna work, but I think it I think something shocking like that is needed mm-hmm. to to change the business model. And maybe, maybe the only thing that happens is plan S, the threat of plan S forces journals to renegotiate what they're doing and saying, okay, we'll, you know, don't don't enforce your plan S and we will back off on, on how much we're charging for something, something like that. I don't know what the, the end game is, but I'm just saying, I think, I think there needs to be some kind of a, a pressure applied from the, from the other side.
0: Isn't it, isn't it to a certain extent happening in the United States with NIH funded um, research where we, there's a bit of an obligation for us to upload our articles to the National Library of Medicine.
1: There is, but those um, those don't actually have to be released until the publisher, you know, release. The, you know, there's usually an embargo of six months to a year. Mm. Now that's a that's a lot of articles, and this is one of the points that the, the New England Journal piece makes that that most of their content does actually end up free after a certain period of time. Right. But like I the, think the research most, articles, you know, many of us need that information within a year. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of information in journals goes stale after you know, a short period of time. So yeah. I, I, yeah, I think there is pressure, but I just don't think there's enough.
2: BMJ, uh, I think puts all of its research articles, uh, freely accessed from the, from the, from the start. So there's no, lo- there's no lockout period for the non subscribers, but so, it also has a lot of other content that it puts on the, on the, the, the journal that is not free, like commentaries and editorials yeah. and, you know, practice guidelines and things like that, which I think are, are sort of, maybe those are things you should pay for because they're not timely.
0: Yeah. I, I think that there's there you know it, it, it as I said before, it's 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 really an issue for our colleagues from developing countries. and and I think that part of the reason why the model has been changing over time is pressure to make some articles more accessible. And there are easy proxy or access vehicles. So that if you're downloading an article, or you're looking up, up an article with an IP that is in an African country or a low middle income country, you'd have greater access to it. So that didn't used to happen. That has happened now. And I think that that is a partial improvement. But I agree uh, with you, Matt, that something more needs to be done.
1: I agree with you, I, although I, I would say, uh, you know, your statement was that this is, this is really a problem for those who are, you know, in, in places where they're, you know, they don't have university subscriptions. But I would say, well, two things. I would say number one is that, you know, this is research that is funded by taxpayer dollars, it should be available not just to those of us who are at universities, it should be available to those of us in the U.S. who are, you know, of the general public.
0: At less than $50 an article?
1: At less than $50 an article. And second of all, I think it does affect those of us in universities, because if our university is paying millions of dollars a year for the subscriptions of these, that's millions of dollars that could be invested into other things. Now, you know, like... Other you know kinds of research infrastructure. So,
2: but does that I, does that necessarily lead to? Therefore, we must have this very heavy-handed policy that that you know has a zero tolerance for publishing outside of this short list, you know this, this abbreviated list of journals that meet this standard. I mean that that's where I find myself stuck. It's not that I I disagree with the problems behind this, and I think the journals are probably squeezing and there's a monopoly. But is is the solution? you know, does it does it does the punishment need the crime, I guess?
1: Yeah, I, I and I think we we I think we disagree a bit on that. I do I think you gotta have something that pushes the needle and yeah I'm with you I'm with you Matt. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. All right. Well we'll leave it there. So let's move on to our last segment which is our amazing and musing where we wanna highlight some of the weird wacky things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. So Don you wanna you wanna go first since yours clearly follows on from the conversation that we've just been having?
0: Yes. All right. So the article that would cost someone who is not associated... Actually, our library doesn't carry this particular journal either, and it's the Journal of Ergonomics. Ergonomics. Ergonomics.
2: ergonomics. Like, like comfy seats? Yeah. Ergo. Like comfy seats. No Ergo. Ergo, therefore.
0: And so this is an article by Bach, Vig, and Nielsen that was published a while ago, 1994, where they saw sought to determine what is the imp- what is the impact of wet underwear <laughs> on thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort in the cold. I saw this paper too. Did you? Wait, <laughs> Come on, hi. seriously? Yes. I didn't read it. What does it say? So, I I I, can't, I think I should probably just read from the abstract cuz that's all uh, I have cuz I couldn't get the real article. So, the purpose of the study it. was to investigate the significance of wet underwear. And to compare any influence of fiber-type material and textile construction of underwear on thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort of humans during rest in the cold.
1: Okay, so, wet underwear in the cold. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Got it. Is wet underwear in the cold a bad thing? Yes. <laughs> That's the question. That I think I'm pretty is sure yes.
1: we know the answer to that one.
0: <laughs> right. So long legged, long sleeved underwear manufactured from hundred percent polypropylene in a one by one rib knit structure was tested dry and wet as we, part of a two layer clothing system. Are Listen we talking hanes here? What are we talking? <laughs> they don't they, they don't name any names, at least in the abstract. In addition, cotton Wool, polypropylene, and double-layer material manufactured from 47% wool and 53% polypropylene (laughs) was tested wet in the clothing system. In the wet condition, 175 grams of water was distributed in the underwear prior to the experiment. (laughs) How? And The test was done on eight men and comprised a 60-minute resting period. Skin temperature... Rectal temperature and weight loss were recorded during the test. Yeah, well, th- th- those, those are the obvious changing ones, weight. right? Yeah, changing weight of the clothes. Oh. Oh. So <laughs> I was going to say, like, that's quick. <laughs> Furthermore, subjective ratings on thermal comfort and sensation was collected. The tests demonstrated the significant cooling effect of wet underwear on thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort. Further, the tests showed that textile construction of underwear in a two-layer clothing ensemble has an effect on the evaporation rate from the clothing during rest in the cold, resulting in a significant difference in mean skin temperature. What was the (laughs) p-value? They... (laughs) D- didn't list it in the abstract. Excellent science. I'm sure that we paid $50 we could answer that question. Wow, The that's thickness worth of the underwear has more of an influence on the thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort than the types of fibers tested. Wow. So that's wow. another, wouldn't it be nice to know? I guess that is that Research is handy. Project. That is good stuff. Who thought, Thank what, you, did, you they, for... did
2: they do other substances too? I mean, they could, they could this could go in so many different ways, like chain mail.
0: You now know or as much neoprene. as I do because I couldn't afford $50 Leather. to buy the article.
2: What about, like, lederhosen? I'd like to know. Or body <laughs>
0: socks.
1: Right. Okay. Or about leotards.
2: Commando. Commando.
1: Okay. That
0: should have been the control group. That should have
2: been that the control
1: group. That should have group. been the control group. <laughs> Chris, what, right, do you, wow. what do you, yeah. what do you, got for
2: us? So I, I, uh, I'm going to keep this very quick cause I know mean we oh, are really? anxious to be done, but I found, found this interesting article by Martinez and colleagues. Actually, this was not and colleagues. It was Martinez in solo in the journal PLOS pathogens in, in November, 2018, um, looking, uh, and she was sort of describing how many infectious diseases have sort of seasonality. And we know this like influenza season, uh, blah, 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 uh, you know, yeah, Lyme yeah, disease yeah, in yeah, the yeah. summer because yeah, that's yeah. where the dicks are there, blah, blah, yeah, blah. So a lot of this was like really obvious and you kind of go through the list of where different pathogens have their seasons and you're like of course that makes total sense but there was a big group of pathogens in this group in this list of infectious diseases don thea and matt fox because i'd like your i'd like your analytic skills to be applied to this that 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 displayed profound seasonality when you would think that there was no reason why it should uh-huh. And you know what that group was no what sexually transmitted infections Seriously? Oh. cluster in the spring and summer why
1: uh, and this was herpes
2: simplex, gonorrhea, sexually transmitted hepatitis B, and um, syphilis. All cluster in the late spring or in the early summer.
0: Valentine's and, Day.
2: Well, yeah, yeah. Just I was thinking, like, what? What? These are behavioral diseases. They're not transmitted to the air. It's got nothing to do with humidity or temperature, ambient temperature, or oh. v- there's no vectors, there's no food. So, like, mm-hmm. how w- 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 does this mean that we humans do things Differently in May and April—is this yes. are we taking Valentine's Day quite literally? I mean, what is going on here?
1: You so we don't you don't think that that the sexual patterns differ by season?
0: Well, it has just never occurred to me. Isn't before. there an expression in spring, a young? Man's persons. fancy, person's <laughs> fancy turns
2: to love. Lightly to, to right, yeah, there is. Apparently uh-huh. it's true. It's now wow. scientifically proven.
1: <laughs> That's interesting, That's so... but I, I, I have to admit I'm not totally surprised. I,
2: I was a little surprised. I mean, I guess I, I you can one can retroactively consider yeah, why. But if true. I said, "Don, tell me when syphilis peaks <laughs> in the year," you probably have, would not uh, have said. No,
0: that's a good
1: point. That's a right? good you point. You could make the argument
0: that it should peak in the in the winter months or the months when well, yeah, the right. days are shorter and the nights are longer. I, I, I would have or thought it would, would peak need in October, snuggle? like because that you
2: know that is two months after the the freshmen matriculate. I, I mean, I I would have thought that that would be when <laughs> there's a lot of. Going on,
1: so <laughs> So, I
0: just, uh, so was what are you suggesting that s- their STDs are only prevalent among college students? <laughs> no, no, because that would imply that 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 off
1: the rails. It's a much more off the rails. So, you know,
2: I think sex is generally universally popular. That 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 seems to be true.
1: It does seem to be true. Yeah. Okay, well, how about that? Moving right. on. Top that, Matt. I cannot top that. I got this from the Twitter feed of Academia Obscura, which is a Twitter feed that I really like, which is at Academia Obscura. And they tweet about all things academia and obscure, as you would imagine. And this was a business card they tweeted out that a, a student put together. And their their picture of the business card above it, they wrote, best business card ever. And I really like it. So it's uh, supposedly from a guy named Rick Thomas, uh, and it reads as follows. The University of Oklahoma, Rick Thomas, doctoral candidate, I guess. I don't know when my <laughs> dissertation will be done. It's a process. <laughs> Ask me how I lost 50 pounds. So I like that one because it just reminded me about doctoral days and how confused I was. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback or this or any other episode or you want to suggest a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthyX or tweet me at, at Prof. Matt Fox or Chris at, at id.gill or Don at, at D Theo1. Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.